Hello and welcome to the week of work. This, my name is Dave Gibney. Uh, I'm your host today. I'm joined by my co-host Claire O'Connor. I'm also joined by two um, good activists and friends of mine. Uh, Kieran Campbell here, who's um, a divisional organizer for Mandate Trade Union in the North and Western Division, um, and also Bernadette McAlisky, uh, who will be familiar to most of our listeners, one of Ireland's most prominent activists and political commentators over the, the past few decades. Um, as we normally do, we, we're going to go through the front pages of the newspapers, and then we'll get into a few of the big stories during the week. But we're going to save a bit of time at the end to talk about the Unquiet Graves um, documentary. Um, and and our own personal sort of observations on that. Um, I'll start immediately by going to Claire, who'll open us up with what's on the front pages of some of uh, the newspapers. Yeah, so I suppose no surprise, the Sunday Independent goes with with, um, with COVID and the testing, and they have testing will not keep up with a second virus surge. It says HSE chief issues secret warning. I don't know how secret this could be, because some of the most uh, vocal public health doctors in the country have been have been shouting this for for almost two months that i've noticed anyway um they've been saying that they're they're not being recognized first of all by the hsc in terms of their contracts that they need additional staff that they need to massively uh, increase recruitment that and if that doesn't happen then the, the track and trace that we need isn't going to happen so yeah that, that's the first thing that jumped out on me because i don't know how this could be some kind of secret warning when you know public doctors public health doctors have been shouting at themselves you might get into covid in a little bit more detail in a couple of minutes um as the sunday business post goes with more than a hundred thousand jobs now at risk in the hospitality industry which you know is pretty devastating this week i think what's happening to, to a huge amount of businesses around the country um i know you know, it's public health guidance and it's quite frightening how the numbers are rising, but it's just, I think it's devastating for, you know, put, uh, restaurants that, you know, closed at the start, went into takeaway mode, managed to open back up again with all the measures and are now back to closing again and are, are, are starting to doubt whether they'll make it back into business at all. Um, the Sunday Business Post also goes with capital gains tax cut unlikely in budget as the Greens don't like it. First thing that jumped to mind there was how they're going with a negative story against the Greens when we know the Greens have very little power when it comes to these budget talks anyway. And the um, the final little tiny little bit over on the side of the front page on the SBP, Facebook warns it may pull out of EU overruling. You know, so th that's just showing Facebook's lobbying power within the EU as if they should have any kind of say in how those decisions go. Yeah, the, the Facebook one I, th I thought was interesting and it's because I, I read through the story, it's about data uh, protection um, and uh, Facebook don't want to hold data in centres in Europe. So if you're a European user of Facebook um, or Instagram, by the way, or any of their social media platforms, they want to be able to transfer your data over to, uh, data over to the United States. And the fact that the EU is saying you can't do that, they're kicking up a major fuss about it and threatening now to pull uh, Facebook and Instagram, which obviously they're never going to do because it's a massive um, income stream for them. Europe, you know, with 300 or 400 million people living here. Um, but yeah, it's just a, an interesting one. Yeah, Claire, there's a couple of stories on um, the, the COVID stuff that I wanted to get into. Uh, you mentioned there about pubs closing. We have a, a member actually of Mandate Trade Union. We represent retail and bar workers um, who's uh, interviewed on page three of the Irish Times weekend. They're talking about how he, you know, he, he works for a pub in Glasnevin. He's been there for 20 years. His wages have been cut in half since the virus struck. Uh, he'll now have to reapply for the pandemic unemployment payment for the third time. Um, so he, he said he's never, ever suffered from depression until this all kicked in. He says, I'm a cheerful person. I am tossing and turning at night now. It's been terrible. It's, 
and, and, and it's been horrible. Um, I just hope that the employers groups aren't using workers like this to put them forward to lobby so that they can get easier restrictions. Um, I'll go back to you, Claire, before I bring Bernadette in on. Yeah, just a brief point on what you said there. There was a young guy on Twitter who did a short video about he, you know, he's a frontline worker. He works 30 hours a week. That's now been cut down to 10, trying to access uh, the PUP and any kind of social welfare. He needs a public service card. This is the first time he's been unemployed. He can't get into an office and they've shut the online service down. So just the kind of barriers that the government are putting people's way in terms of just accessing a payment, it's it's pretty impossible. And it was just, he just videoed himself trying to apply for it and how upset he was getting. And it was actually, it was really kind of distressing to watch. But Bernadette, maybe you, uh, can we get your thoughts on what's happening with COVID, particularly up where you are? Because I think the situation is, is pretty bad up there too, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're in pretty much the same position and particularly in the council area I live in because we we come right up to to the border with the south. So we have uh, quite a sizable number of people who either live south of the border and work north of it or live north and work south. And we have two different sets of national COVID regulations, both sets increasingly problematic for people to understand. And I think when, uh, just picking up, because it was something that I, I was going to pick up on myself, uh, was the the devastation within within the, the hospitality industry. And in fact, with, within all industry, that, you know, the, the point that is kind of missed in the mainstream journalism is that what what COVID has, COVID has done two things to my mind for plain people, working people, families, sick people, old people, uh, kids in school. COVID has simply traveled down the path of existing inequalities, discriminations and hardships and exacerbated all of them. It hasn't actually created new ones in that sense. So when people discover uh, and wonder why immigrants uh, are more vulnerable to COVID, that's nothing to do actually with the physical biology of immigrants. It has to do with their economic position. Mm. And the other thing that they just, you never really see a proper discussion or analysis or query in mainstream media is that COVID has demonstrated the total fragility of the economic system on which we are all currently reliant. People, people who cannot get to their work and get paid, however, miserably for it, cannot actually survive. So when we talk about people who won't work and, and we hear all this stuff in the media about people who don't want to work and workers not wanting to go back to work, uh, people can't survive without work. There are people risking their health to go to work to look after others. And there are people risking their life to go to work because they can't feed their families if they don't. And north and south, the the policies that have been put in place by governments uh, 
were hastily thought out and short term, even though the World Health Organization was telling them this is a pandemic that will uh, and an infection that will run until we find a vaccine for it, which is likely to be two years from the point at which we discovered it. So we're sitting with, we're actually sitting with broken systems, incompetent systems, and incompetent governments, and it's killing us. Yeah, I, I mean, we had this chat yesterday slightly about what COVID has done as well, about lifting the veil on the not just the economic system, but the policies of successive decades of governments um, in terms of housing and health and education, yeah. and how underfunding those has led to this um, disastrous impact, particularly, as you say, in working class communities. Yesterday, there was a report leaked, not leaked, but issued um, just in terms of the numbers of infections in different communities around Dublin. Now, I'm sure this is reflective across the rest of the country, but the worst place impacted in the whole country with COVID is Blanchestown, Mulhudder, obviously a very working class. Um, and as they describe it in the Irish Times over the weekend, and one of the most deprived parts of the country. But the five, if you just look at the, the top five infected areas, um, is Blanchestown, Mulhudder, Tala Central, Southwest Inner City, Balbriggan, Ballymun, Finglas. Um, and if you keep going, it's, it's Tala, Ongar, Castleknock. Again, all working class communities. And then if you look at the least impacted, it's Blackrock. Uh, and then it's Stillorgan, it's Dunleary, Kilini, Holt, Malahide. So the bottom five and the top five on, on both, in both respects are the most impacted. It, you know, you can see the socioeconomic impact of what's happening here. Claire, I think you want in on that. Yeah, and just one thing I think at the start of this, everybody there was a lot of public buy-in for the lockdown, our fear first of all, but also because the message was, when the hospitals aren't prepared, and we need time to build up our ICU capabilities, our staff, and um to prepare ourselves for another wave. I think one thing that is really frustrating people now is that a lot of that work hasn't been done. So actually, the public health service hasn't been really invested in any, like you said, Bernard, anything past this really short-term measure. So that's why we have to go back into these extreme measures and it's disproportionately affecting people at work and people with businesses whereas if the work had been done to maybe up the capacity of the health service we might be able to manage this a little bit better in the communities um, and I think that feeds into one of the other stories of the week as well and it's been a story we're covering every week around the you know people protesting on the streets and it feeding into the the, the, the rise of the far right and the fascism and um why people are being sucked into that because of the frustration with government and the really bad communication around it. And I think like we have covered that in kind of detail over a couple of weeks, but I just think every week that the lack of communication and the frustration that people are finding with the contradictions in who's being prioritised in these measures and who is being left behind as usual is, is what's driving a lot of the anger. But, the, but also, and I'm going to bring Bernadette in on this one because um, I, I watched it on social media yesterday, just about those um, working class communities versus the wealthier communities. And immediately people are out blaming people from poorer communities for not taking precautions and ignoring healthcare advice. And the, maybe it's an education issue and all this sort of stuff. When in reality, what we know is that those people in those working class communities are actually the workers who are keeping everything going. They're the retail workers, yeah. they're the, the restaurant workers, but also the housing crisis. Um, you've got two, at least two generations living in each of those houses, sometimes up to four generations living in those houses because of the housing crisis. You know, you don't have 10,000 homeless or people in emergency accommodation 
um, without having that sort of hidden homelessness as well. They're also the, the type of people who are on public transport all the time to get to work because they can't afford cars. Whereas the people from Kalini and Black Rock, um, are they the type to have jobs that they can work from home? So they can socially distance. They're not dealing with the public every day of the week. So I just think sometimes the media needs to address that element of it. Why is it that working class communities are disproportionately impacted? Uh, Bernadette, you might want in on that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's crucial, Dave, the, point, the points that you have made. Uh, we have this marketing of COVID, which was... Uh, Basically, uh, as Claire said, you know, we all have to do our bit in the North it was to save the NHS. The message was the same. Somehow, mm. uh, it was nobody's fault that, that we are where we are. And yet, uh, globally, it is the responsibility of national governments and, and it is the responsibility of states to be prepared for pandemics, and they have been told, they have been told for the past 20 years, and it's not the first pandemic. Interestingly, it's the first world pandemic to have such a devastating effect on the richer countries of, 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 Western, of Western and Northern Hemisphere capitalism. And, and, and that's a reality. But when you look at this message about somehow the responsibility on us to do our bit, we're all in it together. Yes, we are, but we're not all in it equally. We're not all in it equally. And that's why I say about the paths of existing inequalities. You can't fix the degree of brokenness that existed in the health system on the 1st of March 2020 by the 1st of March 2021 unless you are going to take very, very radical economic decisions in terms of the public purse and the private purse. We have the same problems, for example, in, in track and trace and trace and track here. And nobody's owning up that these things are done by private companies. This isn't the, this isn't the health service that we were all trying to see if that's trying to find out who's got who's got the infection. These are private companies. The people who, you know, we're looking at a regulation uh, in the north at the minute that says only two households can be in one house at the same time to a maximum of six people. But a significant number because of the uninvestment in housing, the housing shortage in the north is as bad as it was at the start of the civil rights movement in the 60s. So we already have two households living in a lot of houses with more than six people in them already. Mm-hmm. So if, if poor people in, in, the, in the poorer areas, nationalist, unionist, immigrant, wherever they are, were to adhere to the present COVID regulations, they'd have to evict some of the people already living in their house from it. I don't know where they'd put them. Yeah. And the same is true of people who have to go to their work, people who are working in the supermarkets, people who are working in the community like ourselves, uh, holding the line with the community, 
people who are working in the hospitals, from cleaning them to to nursing in them, uh, people who are in the agri-food industry, they ha- not only have to go to work to eat, they have to go to work so that everybody else can survive, and they have to go to work on the bus, or they all have to pile into the one van, uh, and they have to do that every day. This is an infectious disease. Yeah, and and by the way, just they're on page six. Sometimes the Irish Times, uh, well, not just it's in the Irish Times this week, but the the Irish media down south doesn't really cover much of the north. But surprisingly, this week there's a fair bit in it. Um, and you might have a comment to make on this one, Bernadette. Um, uh, five patients die in North hospitals out of, after outbreaks. Um, two patients at the haematology ward at Craigavon Hospital in County Armagh died. The Southern Trust confirmed yesterday. That's Friday. Um, it follows the death of four patients on the same ward two weeks ago. Now, I think you might have some connection or some story around that. Right. Yeah, we were, we were talking about the things that aren't in the news. In the course of my paid work on Friday in, in STEP, we had uh, an emergency right as soon as we got into work, which was that a patient in the haematology ward in Craig Avon Hospital mm-hmm had been discharged and sent home. Home being the operative word here. Craig Avon Hospital had in their system and where aware had they been able to use their system that this man had no home. He was admi- he had a home when he was admitted to the hospital last October as a cancer patient requiring urgent treatment. He has been in hospital from October to to now, but by virtue of his, his immigration status and his absence from his house, he lost his tenancy by virtue, and he shouldn't have, but he lost his tenancy and had no home to go to. The hospital refused to take the word of the other immigrants to whom the house had now been allocated, and bullied those people on the phone. They contacted us to say, can you contact the hospital and tell them that we live here and the man in the hospital doesn't? So we spent actually Thursday evening trying to locate social services in the hospital to tell them they knew this man was homeless because they had referred him to us at the outbreak of COVID to tell us he'd be he'd be released from the hospital and give us some advance warning of that that we could try and find an accommodation for him so they could release him. So they were aware of that. But on Thursday evening, this man turned up in a taxi ordered by Craig Avon Hospital and deposited this man on the doorstep of a house they had been informed he didn't even live in. And the solidarity of community was that the people in the house wouldn't leave a sick man on the doorstep. But here's COVID. That man came out of that ward. He was discharged into the street, the, or not even the street, the doorstep 
of people whose basic connection to them was they were immigrant workers from the same country and had worked in the same meat plant. So what? where does COVID regulation and quarantine come in? Where does humanity come in? Uh, they evicted a man from the... They evicted a patient from a hematology ward in a in a hospital, knowing that ward was the subject of high infection with COVID and that people had died. They evicted that man from the hospital and literally left him on the doorstep of his fellow countrymen. So they took him in and gave him a couch to sleep on and rung us the next morning. Uh, and, and we're working on that since. And on that, like, I mean, as you say at the very start, that won't make the newspapers until no. it's found that that guy potentially had COVID infected his housemates now and they go into the meatpacking plant. And then it'll yeah. be all about how he infected them instead of the actual story you're telling us. Claire, yeah, you, right. might, you might want to come in on that. Yeah, but I, I think what Bernard had said, the, the most powerful thing there was that it is, a, it's, where's the humanity? It's a complete lack of compassion. Um, and it's, I don't want to put that on the individual workers, whoever made that call or put them in the, the the taxi either, because this is such a systemic problem and it's chopped down within the health service because you have you have overworked staff trying to yeah. you know manage mm-hmm. and and I just think that it's um it, it's it's the idea of this none of this care comes from a place of like um it's just not, not coming from a place of compassion. And we've actually experienced that a lot over the past couple of years, people being released from hospital into homelessness, or even people through our outreach work receiving treatment for cancer or treatment for you know chronic illness and attending hospital from homeless accommodation and it's just like it's it's so mm. inhumane and it's it the, like happened? the pressure and the stress and the amount yeah and the the amount of energy it takes to actually be homeless and, and navigate the homeless system is so detrimental that, yeah. to your health when you're actually when you're actually trying to um when you're trying to get well and when you're trying to focus on your treatment, mm-hmm. it's devastating. But I, I actually, some of what we're actually talking about now was referenced in a couple of articles this week. So uh, the the examiner, the journal and RTE all covered the what they called either the significant or unprecedented spike in homeless deaths this year. Um, and Anthony Flynn, the kind of the, the director of the CEO of the organisation that I volunteer with, Inner City Helping Homeless, he spoke about the lack of wraparound services and yeah, of, there are no. Um, you know, whether it be mental health supports, mm-hmm. addiction supports, and yeah, and how and how we have so many people going into or uh, going into homeless services with no addiction issues and coming out with addiction issues. You know, and that's mm-hmm. that's the yeah. the emergency accommodation system itself. It's just so traumatic that it's actually causing more problems than it's you know than it's it's fixing. Mm-hmm. But like this year alone, so we have. 39 registered deaths of people that were homeless at the time of their death, um, which is more than we had last year or the year before for the whole year. I would say is that we work with, those figures aren't comprehensive. So we know in July there was 10 registered deaths and there was eight in August. Um, we know at least, you know, we knew of 12 in a three week period um, in one of those months. So, you know, the deaths, that that's kind of a conservative figure, but as well, it's also... When we get to these figures, and I, we always go back to Jonathan Curry, who was the, you know, who died just across from the steps of the doll, and that, you know, when he died, there was such a national mourning and a national outrage, um, and people, you know, people really came together, and there was vigil and there was protests, and yet 
here we are a couple of years down the line and the higher the numbers go the the more desensitized people seem to to become to them and they just seem like numbers instead of thinking that's 49 people at least this year that have lost their lives and never got the never got the the chance to to actually come out of homelessness and receive the kind of care and the kind of life they deserve um and it's 39 families that are destroyed and it's 39 groups of friends and it's just that the impact throughout community and that is totally lost when we use these figures and Brenda, i know you're doing very similar work and i mean stories like that are just they stay with you yeah exactly and and i think something else that that we you know that does need to be said i would i can see and i'm sure you can claire because you're you're working at that cusp the people who are working in the public service on the front line as well trying to negotiate that they are stressed and strained. They are human beings. I, you know, I could imagine, uh, you know, say, you know, saying to, to our own people at work, the, the the pressure and the bullying that goes on. It's just a whole bullying culture. So the pressure on the individual who discharged that person who who was obviously somebody discharged them from the ward, somebody discharged them from the hospital. But the pressure that they are under to get that person out, just get them out from the person sitting above them, the person sitting above them, uh, and the person sitting above them. And there's a swathe of people sitting at the top of every system who are living in all these areas where there's no COVID, with their feet up. On, on the income they earn from their wages. And then you come down to, you know, you come down to what what the administrator in the hospital's getting, you come down to what the nurse in the hospital's getting, what the social worker in the hospital's getting, what the, what the, the ward sister's getting. And, and these are the people who can't afford to be ill down here so so they're under pressure and the whole the whole system is broken mm. and we are being pitted one against the other as if be only for covid it would all be great yeah, yeah. and uh, when when it was broken so badly you know this is this isn't south africa yeah this, you know this isn't ethiopia this is Ireland, rich, you know, in, in terms of, of the world population. This is Ireland, north and south. This is the British Isles. This is Europe, rich in global terms. And well, we can't survive, we can't survive, uh, we can't survive a viral infection. The system is so broken. Fifth richest country in the world per capita uh, based on GDP figures, uh, you know, and, and we can't handle this sort of stuff. Apart from, uh, apart from the fact, Dave, to be honest, they're corrupt. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody believes GDP in this country anymore. But uh, <laughs> but the, the, the thing that you're raising there, the inequalities, which is what I'm, I've been interested in for many, yeah. many years now. But I mean, this this leads me to two or three stories that are in the papers today. You know, when we're talking about all these these issues, um, you know, front page of Sunday Business House, Claire mentioned it there, capital gains tax cut unlikely in budget as Greens don't like it, is the quote. And it's, like, it's incredible that they're talking about 
cutting capital gains tax yeah. from 33% to 25%. And capital gains is, you know, the money you get from shares, from dividends on shares and stuff. So you'll be paying more tax as a worker going and selling your labor than you will be on inflationary policies from from any shares that you your family might have passed down to you. It's, it's incredible that they think of this sort of um, stuff. And then there's another article in the um, uh, Irish Times uh, about Eason's, the bookshop. The shareholders are, are, are to get a 20 million euro payout this year from property yeah. that was sold in the last two years. Like, and, and the workers are probably on layoff and probably expected to take pay cuts as this comes back or probably going to get, as we've seen with Debenhams, um, redundancies. And you know, these, these shareholders will take the 20 million, shut up shop, and the workers will be left to get their statutory redundancy off the state instead of these guys having to pay their fair share. And it's those inequalities that lead me to the the article that I think everybody might want to come in on, um, which is the first time I've really seen it in, in a mainstream newspaper down south, but a proper investigative piece about the far right and how it's rising in Ireland yeah. in, in the Irish Times Weekend Review. And it's talking about the different groups who've managed to come together. So there's Health Freedom Ireland, who are the guys who are helping to organise these mask protests, the National Party, the Yellow Vests, the Irish Freedom Party. And it's, it's sort of pulling together who are the key players in this stuff um, and how worrying it is because they, well, they electorally they haven't had any success. Um, the end of the article is the bit that really struck, stuck out for me. Um, it's talking to a DCU political scientist, Dr. Owen O'Malley, who says, the growing opposition to COVID restrictions combined with the lack of other anti-establishment parties, now that Sinn Féin has gone mainstream, mean there is fertile ground for growth for these guys, the, the, the far right. The conditions are as good as they're getting going to get for them in Ireland. There is... Uh, there is more of a possibility of electoral, electoral success for the far right than I've seen in a long time. Now, I'm sure we're all concerned about that, but I'll, I'll throw it to you, Bernadette, first, if you want to give us your observations on the growth of the far right in Ireland. Well, uh, I'd say I've been, you know, I've been saying for, for quite some time uh, that we should be, we should be t- the, taking fascism seriously. Uh, I grew up in a generation, and I said that many a time, that, you know, we called everybody over the age of 25 a fascist just because they were over the age of 25. Uh, and we learned not to do that. But we have, we are looking globally at, at the rise, and we say things like the far right. We're looking at the deliberate fomenting and organizing and reinstating of the fascist ideology of the 30s and those small far-right groups whatever whatever starts them you know whatever uh, particular issue they are around uh, some of them are ideologically committed to fascist ideologies and some of them uh, are single issue groups around their perceived self-interest and their and their own fear and inequality so the one the one section of those people who are afraid about masks people who don't trust the government because the government has lied to them before are open to believing that they're lying about masks uh, if the government is blaming the poor for the spread uh, of covid there's a defensive reaction amongst many poor people to say, it's not me, it's you, or it's them. Uh, But at the core of it, 
And I think that's a bit we have to take seriously. This is a small country uh, where you kind of know everybody by name. And just like we know your politicians by name and, you know, we know we know where they live and who they are because the place is that small. We know who their granny is. Most of the ideological right in this country have faces and names that we know. And they're fascists. And we have to start challenging, challenging them and challenging their deliberate exploitation of the positions they hold. And we know where they are. We know where they are. And we need to be calling it out, uh, you know, and organizing ourselves against it and know what we're organizing against. So while in the progressive movement and the left movement and the social justice movement, we are busy picking the fleas of somebody else's back and pointing out they're infested. The, the right and the far right and the fascists are forgetting a bit about somebody might have fleas or somebody might have lice or somebody might, uh, I'm speaking politically, of course, somebody might have some defect that would not allow us to stand in the street with them. And gathering up as many of the disaffected and confused and ill-informed as they can and organizing for the single coherent purpose of building an electoral platform for fascism in Ireland. I completely agree. And yeah, we I... would need to we would need to stop bickering about the the finer nuances of our ideological correctness before our backs are to the wall. That's what I think about it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, Brenda, because I think that when it comes to fascism and particularly um, anti-racism work, because that's, I find, one of the biggest aspects to it, uh, we need to show a united front because they, I, I think they do really take advantage of the cracks across the left and we, we allow them to do it. Um, yeah. I, you know, we're, I'm involved in, in a network of communities against racism and one of the things we're, we're focusing on the most is, um, you know, difficult conversations with people and trying to get out into communities and enabling people to have those conversations because I found even say last week we had we spoke about this on this podcast and I had somebody you know that I love in my family contact me and say um you know this might be a stupid question but can you explain to me what the far right means and what the right means yeah. so I'm really and I had that conversation and it was a brilliant conversation and it you know it, it, so many people out there feel afraid to ask those questions because I think we can be so um, we can shoot people down too quickly, first of all, mm -hmm. and we can be too quick to shout people down as fascists that are maybe turning up to these protests and that are sharing the wrong thing on Facebook. Or, um, And I'm just as guilty of that as anybody else. And I think it's something that we really need to work on. But yeah, again, I'm really glad to see so many papers take this up now this week. We've been kind of beating this drum for a while that it needs to be taken seriously. I know Eva Grace Moore spoke last week on this podcast saying there's been an aspect in journalism where they didn't want to give it oxygen. But it's it's gone beyond that line, you know. We need to be it needs to be really taking the fight to them. Um, and I think as well, this you know the conversations around, for example, you know Trumpian politics and the language of the likes of Trump, and that's been gaining huge popularity over in America. Uh, it, that now I remember after I was I remember doing a couple of shows after the election, and 
it, it was put to me that you know the rise of Sinn Féin for instance was was similar to the rise of Trump or the rise of Boris Johnson and I remember being so clear and you know being so frustrated that that was actually being portrayed in that way because the difference in Ireland at the time and it wasn't that long ago was that we didn't take that turn to the right the anger and the desire for change didn't take a turn to the right it took you know mm -hmm. it took it, it turned to what we were calling the vote left transfer left movement but i feel like that is really changing and it's changed very quickly and it is quite frightening but again kind of back to the trumpian i think it does bring us to one of the other big stories of this week and that's ruth Bader, the death of ruth bader ginsburg um the supreme court justice over in america at 87. um uh, you, you've spent a good bit of time in america uh, do you know much about Ruth? Or, you know, were you very aware? Well, of Ruth I would know. There? You know, I would have known uh, not not so much in sort of my own uh, broader business in, in in America around civil rights and anti-racism and and, uh, and uh, campaigning on Irish issues here, but I would have known in 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 that broad coalition of the work of the American Civil Liberties Union. And her active work in that uh, around uh, gender, particularly, because that was her that was that was her area of work. I think what has always been of interest to me, particularly uh, about Ruth Ginsburg and about the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, is is the way was the way that they worked, and I think that 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 model uh, is a very good model. Uh, I saw it again when I was working uh, on on human rights with uh, around issues in South Africa, actually around around AIDS and the treatment action campaign. Uh, and and uh, it's it's that ability to to bring together the the whole progressive movement from street level from from the level of those who are a victim of the injustice to the community organizing around that to the building of solidarity around that and 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 building campaigns that reach from the street to how society is supposed to work to the courts to the use of the constitution and it's where we it's where we are weak uh, and when it when it works, uh, it significantly works. And she was very very key, just as the person who started out at the bottom, in that she she went with it, if you like. So she was the person who was arguing uh, first of all against the economic discrimination. Uh, she was a very very bright woman. Uh, you know, she was she was a Harvard student. Uh, but despite the fact that she came out, uh, she came out of Harvard as as top of her class. She couldn't get a job in a law firm as a woman. Do you imagine that a Harvard graduate from a Harvard Law School graduate, who was the best Harvard of all graduates that year, she couldn't get a job because she was a woman, and and that's where she started off. So she spearheaded and wrote and drafted many of the challenges and then led them in court. So her profile grew uh, and she was in many instances the first woman at different parts of, uh, of, of, of different parts of that move into 
uh, equality within, within the court system itself. And now, what often happens at that point is then people pull the ladder up behind them. Uh, but she she just kept going and she spearheaded uh, reproductive rights. And, and I think what's telling about the state of America at the minute is America has nine nine court nine Supreme Court judges. One of them has died. If you just separate this out to what I was saying again about COVID, a country as big as the United States, which is supposed to be a democratic country, has nine Supreme Court judges. One of them has died. And every decent progressive soul in America is in despair as to what will happen to the Supreme Court as a result of that one person's death. That's how fragile democracy and law is in America at this time. And we keep calling that the rise of Trumpism as if he was some kind of fool or phenomenon. That is the rise of the right. That is the rise of the erosion of democracy. And that didn't happen overnight. I think we do need to start saying to ourselves, what you know what we know what the principles of socialism are. What you know, what are the ten principles that would identify fascism so that people would know what it is? And it's it's the erosion of demo or or the capture of democratic principles. Uh, it's the exploitation of fear through populism, but simplifying and removing the the ability to self-organize from people like through the classic is find me a fascist who likes a trade union yeah yeah no it's i, I agree with you Bernard. i think it's actually I, I and we really that have to start doing those things seriously because uh lots i'm looking at lots of friends and colleagues in america and you know it's not simply the which the media pay into, you know, the uh, iconic figure, uh, and and so we're all we're all emotionally attached to people we don't know. Uh, yeah. It's not that. It's not like people turning up for the death of a pop star or Princess Diana. There is a fear amongst political people that the last vocal link in stopping the Supreme Court unraveling through law 40 years of, of gains for women and then everybody else is, is what's going to happen if Trump wins the election and the Supreme Court is now entirely in his control. Yeah, no, it's I, I feel it's heartbreaking thinking of people in America that are trying to fight for a better world because they really just seem to be coming up against loss after loss and barrier after barrier. Um, I just want to, we want to move on to talk about the unquiet grave. So I just want to touch very briefly on two last stories. One was from during the week and it was a devastating article from Kitty Holland about uh, the removal of children under the age of one from mothers and how... Um, it was disproportionately happening in Munster, particularly Limerick and Clare. 123 kids were removed from their mothers before the age of one. Some within days, the story of a woman who says she felt like an incubator for Tussla. 
her 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 child was taken off her a couple of days old. Um, and the excuse that was used, the reason that was used, was a previous domestic violence relationship, and that they didn't feel like the mother was um, you know, was would be emotionally available to the child. Just really extraordinary stuff. But actually, one of the reasons that they talked about reunification and how reunification was always the top of agenda for Tusla and. We're actually in the middle of a program in inner city helping homeless of trying to take a human rights case on some of these issues because we found that women in homelessness are having their children taken off them and then they're not being contacted again. And particularly if women aren't in a position, they don't know who to contact, they haven't got anybody fighting their case, not being represented. Um, children are being put into foster care and sometimes even being put into uh, guardianship is taken away and being put into long-term care without the notification of the parents. And it's, it's, it's becoming a real issue that we're seeing, even though we're not the kind of organisation that really is qualified to or should be dealing with this, but it's become so prevalent. It's been time and time again and the, the women often have nowhere else to go to. We've had the guards come to us at eight o'clock in the morning with cases because they're, they're going to other organisations and there just doesn't seem to be anywhere prepared or qualified to to look after it so it just i just wanted to know it because it really jumped out on me and i found it just a, a really harrowing read um and then kind of something i found linked to, to the unquiet graves as well was this year is the 15th anniversary of the death of terence wheelock um for anybody who doesn't know terence wheelock was um arrested in, from the inner city he was a young man taken into custody um incorrectly he was assumed to be part of a gang that had stolen a car the night before and he wasn't and he was taken into custody and he he was said to have attempted suicide in the cell and um he was brought to to the matter hospital and he, he went went into a coma and died a couple of months later there's a podcast by friends of ours at the, at the tortoise shack called pleased and they have covered this this week in a really detailed way they spoke to the family it's an incredible story um to listen to mostly because of the death of Terence as well, who the family believe was murdered in police custody, but also the level of harassment that they they've, they've received since. And um, I know this is a well-known story within the inner city. I'd heard about it long before I heard this podcast, but I think that it's the kind of story that, you know, reminds us that you can, without truth and rec reconciliation and justice, there can be no progress. Communities can't move forward. There can be no trust building there can be no community building um if we don't have those things and I'd, I'd recommend anybody to go and listen to it but more importantly then when i watched on quiet graves i just found the the comparisons um really powerful and again coming back to that idea of without truth there can be no reconciliation there can be no just justice well, that's part one of episode 21 of The Week at Work with uh, Bernadette McAlisky, Claire O'Connor and myself. Uh, we'll be back later on in the week with part two where we discuss Unquiet Graves, uh, the Murder Triangle, the Glenang Gang and the Troubles in the North. Uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and to subscribe to the podcast if you like what you hear. Uh, and don't forget to give us a rating too. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back to you shortly.